Hi, and welcome to episode number 10 of Acquiring Scale. This is your host, Gabriel Murillo. And today we have Ryan Tansom. He helped turn around their family business and then sell it for eight figures to a local competitor in 2014. And the growth and exit process was unexpectedly difficult undertaking, but the lessons that were learned have proven to be invaluable. He took his experience and co-founded Arcona, where he created the Intentional Growth Five Principles and Framework and hosts the popular Life After Business podcast, over 200 episodes and 300,000 downloads. His mission is to help entrepreneurs get clarity in how to grow the value of their business with end in mind by shifting their mindset away from annual income to focusing on long-term value creation. This new mindset will help entrepreneurs create a strategic plan that gives them the freedom of choices to do what they want with the business long term. Hey, Ryan, welcome to the show. That's awesome. I love it. How you doing? Good, man. Yeah, I appreciate you being here. I'm a big fan of your podcast. I think I recommend your podcast more than any other podcast out there. <laughs> oh, I love it. I love it. Makes everything that we do in the, the basement while we're sitting and uh, staring at our mics all worth it, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I know that I have a bunch of questions for you. You are a representation of the kind of guests that we want to have in the show, people that have done it, that living and breeding this topic about buying and selling online businesses. In your case, you're all kind of different industries, but I'd love to share some of your story. I know there's a lot in that story, but maybe we unpack it and we break it down to how do you get started with working with the family business and then we can chat more on when you guys decide to sell. Yeah, you bet. So I started full-time in the family business around the last crisis. So here we are, we're both just getting released from quarantine, but I started full-time around the 08, 09-ish timeframe when the economy took a, took a you-know-what. And I worked in the family business my whole life. And he, my dad, started it from the ground up back in the 90s. Mortgage our house, bought a quarter million dollars worth of copiers. Sold them all. I think we topped off at 21 million and 115 employees in three locations. When I started there, the reason I started to answer your question specifically is I was a sales guy and I was willing to work for nothing. And in the financial crisis, the salespeople were actually, it was easier to find a job because we were working for nothing. <laughs> so I got uh, persuaded to go work for the family business. And so I started actually selling for the family business, copiers and IT services, which is longer story. But the reality was I started there and the goal was to take it over and have it be mine. That was the reason I went through all of the crazy challenges that comes with working with family members, and especially as a second gen. You say second generation, but any other people trying to do the same like you, either inside of the family or outside, or like, were you competing? That's a, that's a good question. And I know for your audience, we, I was talking about the fact that the business was managed IT and copiers and traditional, but it's going to completely relate. And we're going to tie it into online businesses. It doesn't matter the industry. So just so you know, people have an understanding of where this will unfold. And the, honestly, from the family business perspective, like I was the oldest. So I came in first. There was a big wave of old, I call it the old legacy people that my dad started with and brought into the business. He was absent from the company for about six years by the time I started because he went through a bunch of personal stuff. I started, we had a GM and that GM didn't know the difference of top line and bottom line. He was kind of a toxic individual at that point. We've made our amends and stuff like that, but just, I ended up, I think fired, I think I fired 55 people by the time I was 25 or 26 or something like that. So 
it was just a whole turnaround. So I started in there by myself. My wife worked there for a while. My sister, no one really made it. And because it was a challenge turning it around and there was a lot of complications as well as emotions. So it was kind of just work as hard as you possibly can. So no one thinks you're an entitled jerk like everybody thinks you're going to be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I know we don't necessarily want to go deep into whole family business stuff, but I think it's very similar from working with family than working with non-family, the partnership structures and all these deal structures that for larger businesses, you will definitely want to have great partners like anybody will want to have great partners. But do you see any major lessons from establishing boundaries with the family that can be beneficial now that you're working with? I'm assuming and we'll get to that you're working with non-family in your new ventures. Any big lessons there? Yeah, super good question. And honestly, the, the biggest takeaway for anyone that has a business, whether they've got partners looking to buy a company, sell a company, doesn't really matter. There are two things that you need to do like immediately. You need to separate your management role. So what you're doing for a pay, for payroll, right? For W-2 income, what is your management role? And then how are you getting paid for that and the value you're bringing versus your ownership role? So if you and I owned a company and that was doing 2 million in revenue and 200 grand in EBITDA, and I was like essentially, let's say I was the content writer only working 10 hours a week, I should be getting paid for being a content writer for only 10 hours a week. Ownership is different. That's where distributions happen. That's where ownership, liquidation, buying and selling happens. Your management role is how you get paid for your salary, period. Therefore, if you make those determinations, you're, all the crap that happens with partnerships or family members, I actually just did a podcast recently where it was like people solve problems through payroll because they don't understand how valuations and ownership work. So if you separate those two, whether it's family or non-family, it's just here are your roles, here are your ownership, and there's different things that come with both of those. Wow. And do you find any best practice on how to define that objectively with especially people that they put a lot of work initially, but then after they put in the value, then there's not much active work that needs to be done, right? That's a super good question as well. And I don't know if your audience has heard of EOS, the Entrepreneur Operating System or Traction, or there's OKRs, there's Rockefeller Habits. It doesn't matter what it is. There's a ton of emotions that come into what you were talking about. I've personally gone through that with other partners as well. And I actually went through the exact same situation on my previous company. And it's really hard. <laughs> there's no one, There's no other way to put it than to sit down in front of someone and say, you're not providing any day-to-day -day value. So therefore, there's an ownership role there. And then if they're going to be riding along on ownership, they should be bringing capital or something of expertise, or there needs to be a buyout or something needs to happen on both fronts. And I think the reason I brought up EOS or any of those systems is because it helps you rely on the process instead of become about emotions. It doesn't mean it can make it not hard. You know what I mean? But like to sit down, if we had a company, I said, you know, hey, we're growing and you're not doing a whole lot and you're getting paid a hundred grand. We need a hundred grand to invest in other places. You can still have your 45 or 55% or whatever, but those are just different conversations. And the biggest challenge that partners get into, especially if it's their first business, is that other owner. So if we were partners, they don't have, like, let's say you don't have value in the day to day. Most of the first gen owners like that, either the company's not big enough for distributions to help you maintain your lifestyle, or you have no ability to go find another job. So then it's literally just a survival mechanism of fighting. And that's why a lot of people can't get out of that because that owner that is no longer valuable cannot replace their income with the distributions or isn't willing to, or isn't willing to go get another job. So it's a lot of 
cash flow decisions that become emotional. Yeah, understood. I want to get back to your story. So you say you took over the business, you make all kind of changes, implementations and systems and all the fun stuff. But what was the process of like deciding that it was a good time for you to sell after you? So you took over and how long do you spend on that process? It took us from the time that I started till when we sold was like five and a half years, a little somewhere around there. And it was total full on combat mode for every single two weeks hit payroll. And at one point, I mean, we had banking issues. So we were, we lost 900 grand the year I started and we sold it for over, you know, in the eight figures. And the crazy part is I bet you if I know what I know now, I could have probably done all that stuff in a 10th of the time and the right things and not spent money on the wrong things and millions of dollars in the wrong places probably wouldn't have sold. So you name the things we would have done differently. And so I think it's, we did it out of complete survival mode instead of intentionally saying, okay, what are we trying to accomplish? How are we going to do this? And the reason we sold is my dad never got repassionate about the business. So I dragged him back in. At one point he said he would have walked away without all the personal guarantees and that would have made him happy, but we got a lot more than that. So it was like, he just wanted to be done and we couldn't figure out a way to make him financially free and me take over the business. Now I know 7,000 ways to do it. <laughs> but there was not a clear roadmap on how to do it because people, our advisors and the knowledge and education wasn't out there. Yeah, that's what I love from hearing your story before. And like I said, we met before and I've been checking out your journey and following along. It's so cool that you're so transparent. It's a cool thing to say, yeah, I figured X and whatnot and make it seem so perfect. But you are opening up and saying like, look, I make a bunch of mistakes. And I think that's why it's 20 times better. Like, I, that's why I wanted to I appreciate that. <laughs> You know, episode and like, this is the guy that I got to learn from. Let's pull that string just for a second because I want the listeners to, to just know if someone says they sold their t company for $20 million, who freaking cares? Because that's what we call enterprise value, which is way different than equity value, which is way different than net proceeds. Let's say you and I both own a business and we both sold it for 20 million bucks. Okay. First of all, that's the top line purchase price, enterprise value. Well, let's, let's say we had 22 million in debt and we were partners. Okay. So we literally both walked away with a million dollars in debt. <laughs> like, so you have to like pull into and say, okay, what was the equity? And equity is just like a house. If your house is worth 500 grand, you owe 400, your equity is a hundred, right? That's the same way with businesses. If the value of the company is 20 million or call it 2 million and your equity, because you have to take out debt is a million. And then you've got partners, you each have half a million dollars in equity. And then you say, okay, well, if you sold your house, you have to, you know, depending on the state and you have to pay capital gains. And in businesses, the asset versus stock sale is ordinary income versus capital gains. So let's say on that hunt, like if you and I went through that whole thing, that the net proceeds and what you walk away with on a $20 million sale might be a hundred grand. <laughs> so like people like, guess what they talk about at the golf course or at the trade show, the enterprise value. It's way cooler because everybody's going to buy you a drink. <laughs> <laughs> wow, this you just blew my mind. Like I have no clue, but it totally makes sense. I guess I haven't seen or talked to people yet that are bragging about those 20 million. <laughs> but I'm probably gonna see them. And honestly, that's what people should ask me. When you said on the intro that I had an eight-figure sale, the question would be how much did you walk away with? <laughs> like that's the real and then I said that what? Like, I mean, honestly, we paid millions of dollars in taxes. We had lots of, we had debt from the bank from an inventory and all this other stuff. My dad got a humongous junk and then I had enough to be able to start my new venture. So it's like, 
There's, you know what I mean? You have to pull the thread to make sure that who you're talking to and or when you go offer up it to buy a company or you want to go sell, that purchase price was talked about, but all the underworkings of terms and conditions and deal structures will impact how much you walk away with or how much you that, that person that you want to buy walks away with. I love the name of your podcast, Life After Business. People that are looking to sell, there is a, a life after business. And the funny stuff is that even you or, or like I'm doing it right now with this show and this journey of acquiring scale. Now we want to get back to the game. Like you say on another podcast that I was listening from you, you were being interviewed, you were talking about, well, people are chatting about the school stuff, but they want to they get bored and they want to get into buying businesses as well. So do you think that the whole fantasy of like, okay, I'm going to go through an exit and take all my chips then taking a break and feeling good and then getting back into the game. What's really the component? Is it the management thing that people like you're saying, like in your case, your dad was overwhelmed. There was not a strong management team and suddenly he, he wanted out. That's it. But then you guys exited and you personally wanted to, now you're probably going to buy another bunch mm -hmm, of other mm -hmm. businesses in the next decade. So Is it management or what do you think is the component that makes somebody say, I don't want to deal with business ownership? That's a good question. And it's funny because I'm about to retitle the name of my podcast. <laughs> and we should talk about that offline, but I'm about to change the podcast title to Intentional Growth, How to Grow the Value of Your Company with the End in Mind. Because I think it actually is addressing what you just said. And that is, there is no life after really for entrepreneurs. And wow. there is this, so much of this regret after people sell. Even, I mean, I've interviewed people that have netted a hundred million bucks and they're pissed. And it, it, here, I think the reason is because people don't understand management roles versus ownership. They don't truly understand finance as in like, okay, your ownership, if you're doing a half a million EBITDA, You normalize it. Here's the value of the company and here's what it's worth to me net at this valuation. When we uh, manage our clients, I mean, you could literally measure, monitor that the net proceeds value of your company while you own it on a monthly, quarterly, and annual basis. But most people have no idea how to do that. So if you know how that works and then you actually understand mergers and acquisitions, you can't necessarily recreate that cash flow outside of owning a company because you could be getting 20 percent cash on cash. But what happens is there's risk in it. So like I'd say management fatigue and, and like the, just the stress of not having your shit together and ma managing the operations. And then they, people have these questions of, well, I'm literally just helping build a comp plan for a president for one of our clients. And the president's going to get paid 150 grand plus bonuses up to $200,000 potentially. But that's going to come out of the owner's annual net proceeds, or I'm sorry, annual income, right? Like the K1 that they get from salary and distributions from that company, it's going to, you know, hiring that presence is going to impact their annual income, period. However, if their multiple goes from a four to a five, the value of their net worth and their asset that that business just went up because they are hiring and investing in that business. But if people do not have an understanding of when and how they can harvest that value, then there's this fear that and anxiety that drives When and how do I get rid of this? And when and how do I leave my ownership? I don't know. Like, so there's this whole crap load of confusion about how to manage this. And then usually, and I'm curious in your experience, they go through an exit and then they go, okay, now I understand how this works. That sucks. I wouldn't have sold. And I would have probably just hired a president and used my cash flow to buy more companies. 
thousand percent. Did I hit home a little bit? <laughs> yes, indeed. And I, I'm glad you called me out because when people are asking me about this, it's fun. It's cool to say, yeah. And it brings a lot of credibility because it is a painful process, especially working with a broker that they have their some obstacles. Some of them, some other brokers will sell anything. <laughs> but the F International, I actually have them on the show and they're great people and the process is, is solid. I feel the same way. Now I literally look at probably 40 different businesses in the past five months, business prospectus. And I'm like, dude, my business, was awesome. like you're saying, recreate, exactly. Recreating what I build without knowing. But when I was on the other end, I had that anxiety, that fear, like, is this going to go away? Is this going to disappear? Is this going to flop? And that's probably what you're saying. It doesn't change when you have 100 employees. It's all about knowledge. It's It's all about knowledge and understanding how this all works. Because once you do, and once you understand the finances and the valuation, how strategic operations, like when and how you're investing in the business, that's what professional business buyers do all day long. And they don't, like, here's another, I think, challenge that a lot of, first time founders have. I mean, it was my identity. The employees were my friends. Like how, like, I mean, we won the Minnesota wild, the whole managed IT services and office equipment contract, couple million dollar contract. Like our logo was everywhere. And I'd walk down the street like, that's us. And like, and then you got people that are professional business buyers worth like a thousand times more than us go, who gives a shit? Like, I know that that company kicks off a bunch of money, right? I mean, like when you realize that there's this it's you get the anxiety I think comes from not knowing the value of it, not knowing how to get yourself out of that or purely getting sick of talking about your industry or service. I mean, like the moment that someone has burnout or they're, they're dispassionate about it. Like my dad, if he, if he heard the word canning copier, he'd like want to run in front of a bus. But like the moment that happens for a founder, if they can realize, okay, now it's time to start transitioning my management role, not my ownership, my management role. And then I can have some freedom to think about what I want to do next and how to use this cash flow to use as a down payment on the next company. And then you start looking at being a serial entrepreneur as your identity instead of I sell sunglasses on Amazon or whatever it might be. I love it. The next question I have, why Arcana, why the company and what is it that you guys do? So the why behind Arcana, it's an interesting one because I found out after six years, I mean, it's been six years since we sold that. I wish I would have just known this stuff so I could have made my own decisions, right? So at first I started with consulting with people and then I just really boiled down to a couple of years ago. I was just like, you know what? If entrepreneurs can just learn this themselves, then they can do whatever they want with the knowledge. We just need to make it as easy for them to understand this stuff without selling, right? Without a financial MBA. I mean, we get into this, some serious stuff. Like my business partner, ran private equity firms as a CFO, right? I mean, like you're not going to really get more detailed information, but we do it in context. So like we had one educational bootcamp where there was an owner of an ad agency and then a huge healthcare company where the guy had bought 14 companies and they both were like, holy shit, we learned a lot. But the ad agency guy like doesn't want to ever think about this stuff again. He just wants to hire this out. The other guy wants to do it too. I mean, so like, I think it really just boiled down to people just need to learn this and so it kind of goes back to why we built the business. So my partner's in his 60s and I'm in my 30s. Like we, I've got the long game playing and he's financially free already. And I don't know, I'm curious on um, your experience, but once you learn this stuff, you're like, you kind of shift dimensions. And like most people that eventually sell that have a timeline, they either get into investment banking or they get into private equity or they go buy a bunch of companies. And like 
my kind of why's I want to try and solve the problem in the marketplace of the education. And knowing that like our company, Arcona, is not going to be worth $100 million down the road because I know how this stuff works, right? So my personal wealth will be made when we start buying home services companies. So we want to, there's a whole different model that we're going to have in, in two to three years of HVAC garage door companies and stuff like that. That's boring, but also could use some innovation. But like this is just to solve the market problem and it's fun. I haven't found really somebody doing it in the internet space like the kind of high quality training that you're doing. It's more for larger companies, not necessarily for the on internet entrepreneur. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, are you okay. talking about what we're doing? Yeah. No, uh, honestly, I'm in the process of talking to some people that you and I both know about actually putting this out for the online entrepreneurs. So the the Qualice, the FEs, the Global Wire Advisors, those they all have intentions of selling the businesses and, and helping people buy them. And I'd say 90% of this stuff applies to regardless whether you're hundred million or a million or whether you're in e-commerce or whether you're manufacturing or whether you're service, cash flow is based on risk and the value of cash flow, whether it's real estate, whether it's a bond or whether it's a business, an internet business or a manufacturing company as an asset, it's worth a multiple of that revenue or multiple of that cash flow based on the risk period. And so then there's the, okay, like based on our five principles, there's very technical things in the e Amazon e-commerce space of like how you're handling, you know, getting people off of Amazon and optimizing the ads and putting them onto your own site and getting them onto Shopify and then like client concent or the concentration of traffic. All those different things are very specific, but the framework is applicable to anybody. I mean, like, and that's where I think people in, in the online space can take and run with the foundation that we've built. But I mean, a business is a business. It's cash flow. Yes. Okay. Got it. What you're doing, you have the bootcamp. Now you have this online productized platform or series of, of training that you're going to be releasing. Do you think Arcona decided to say, we still can solve this problem with a different business model? You're you know, providing value, serving, connecting, you know, building your network and all kinds of things. And but you, you did stay away from hourly consulting, right? Sort of. And, and actually, it, in in the model that you're talking about, yes. I mean, and this is with any advisor, any company, at like the, the entrepreneurs that are listening, you should ask, first of all, what are people's experience experiences? And then also, where do they get paid and how do they get paid? If you don't know that to the T, like someone says, hey, we do free value building consulting, but they, they sell companies. It's like, come on, dude, you sell companies. This is going to be half-assed bullshit until you get to sell my company. Like, I get it. And so the, this is my gripe with advisors and consultants and advisors. I'll put like, this is the principle number five, which is tax, wealth, legal, CPAs, all the, like the investment bankers, brokers, all these advisors, there's really good ones and there's really bad ones. And the challenge that I had, we like, I mean, there are endless strategies we could have done to save millions of dollars, but the advisors had never ran a company. They did not care about the big picture. They did not bring in solutions. So here I am as the entrepreneur who knows how to sell IT services and copiers and how to like run operations. I don't know. At that point, I did not know what they know. So I'm like, oh, you wear a suit and you're, you're a partner at a 200 person CPA firm. You must be really smart. Totally wrong. Second time they've ever done an acquisition and they left, they left they millions of dollars on the table. So the, the challenge is, is how do you vet out good consultants and good advisors? Like in, so that's the number one problem. And for, for us, like, I want you to know, I want you to understand whether that person's full of shit or not. 
<laughs> I wanted it like, yeah. you know, are they a good investment banker? I understand how investment bankers get paid, the deal structures. Like there's enough knowledge foundation there to be able to vet out good versus bad versus like how they get paid, negotiate, just not have to do it, right? So to answer your question, the, the online educational courses are primary profit center. What we had is we had people that would walk out of that and go, well, we need help. And we couldn't find people that would actually go in and help them that had the right business model. So my business partner came from the fractional CFO services. We charge 150 bucks an hour for CF, fractional CFO services to build out the financials and tie the strategic plan and the M&A, the mergers and acquisitions plan to the owner's goals. But it's like such a small percentage of our overall company that it, the goal is that we're, again, we're helping the client. But the the challenge is it's not that revenue stream, the billable services revenue stream will never be worth a bunch unless it's huge. And this is kind of goes back to your consulting question is those a lot of consultants that bill 300 bucks an hour need to buy groceries and pay for the bills. So that's why they front load all that stuff on the hourly rate. They don't have other things that they're selling. The only reason I bring that up is because a lot of the audience and the people that I've been working with as well, will always come to this place where well, we should be consulting with somebody like an expert that has done this. And next thing you know, we get a proposal from somebody that- 15 grand, 20 grand. Right, exactly. (laughs) What are you going to do for that? (laughs) Exactly. Yes. So I spent 40 grand on what was called a SIM, so a prospectus, right? I had to write the thing and then the investment banker never came back. Never, never never took us to market. So I wrote this like 45 page like pitch deck that he was going to go take us to market with. And then he just never came back. <laughs> oh my God. Um, he was from, he was from New York though. So he was a good guy. Okay. <laughs> I hear you. All right. So I know you have that, you know, how do you hire the best advisors, legal tax, wealth, bankers, brokers. So you briefly touch on that, um, but do you have any other insights on how to go through that process? Yeah, if we're putting on the buyer's hat right now, because I think that's what a lot of your audiences are, is going to be doing. And by the way, the people that learn, the stuff that we're doing, it's mergers and acquisitions. So whether you're buyer or the seller, all the same stuff applies. It's like teaching the rules of a football game and you just have winners and losers, right? I mean, that's very similar to M&A. Like here is how it works and you're either buying companies or selling companies. And then this is how deal structures work. This is how all the different tax and legal and all, all that stuff works. So my my advice would be is the more you can learn about this, as in like how valuations, value growth, M&A and all that stuff works, the less you have to spend on all those people. And that's the whole point. I had a woman that was in my our boot camp. She goes, we would have, she would have saved herself about 400 grand is what she said. If she would have known this, because she overspent on the $450 an hour lawyers and CPAs because she didn't know all this stuff versus like, if you can take and say, okay, well, Here's how I want to, like, no, let's take an example. Like, let's say I wanted to buy your company. Let's say it was doing a half a million in EBITDA and it was times four, two million bucks. How much down? How much over time? Are we doing an SBA loan? Are we doing a conventional loan? Are we going to Are we gonna have some seller financing? How is that going to be tied? Is there going to be an earn out? Is it going to be an asset purchase or a stock purchase? Is there employment contracts? Is there like some in escrow? All of that stuff ripples into tax and legal. Right. So the challenge is, is like if you don't know that stuff, you're just going to find the deal and say, I want to buy this company. And you have no idea how it's going to fit. You don't have a you know, like you don't have a financial structure that you're going to say, I'm going to plop it in here. I'm only willing to put half a million dollars down. The rest is going to have to be. Here's what terms, conditions that we need on the bank loan. 
And here's what we need for the seller loan in order for us to make our internal rate of return of 20%. Like that's what private equity firms do. Like they have various, they have an entire industry and strategy of saying, here's exactly how we're going to buy these things to make the money back. And then they're the ones kind of bringing in the CPA and the attorney saying, hey, just do what I tell you to do. You know what I mean? Versus saying, okay, like you're completely relying on your quote unquote profession of an acquisition entrepreneur. You're relying on other people to know this stuff. If you don't find the right people, you got some serious risk. So to directly answer your question, I'd say, if you don't know this, the first thing you need to do is learn it, or you need to overspend on all your advisors to get educated. Cause I mean, just doing it wrong could be a big problem. <laughs> I'm going to say it again, but I became a really great fan of your podcast just because even though I was not buying yet a training from you, that was some sort of training. And then really that's what inspired me. And I want to thank you in, in public, no I guess, with you inspiring me on, on like doing this podcast at the beginning. It's, it's, when we met at Rodion in November last year, I was so ready for, I think it was October, so ready to launch the podcast and something silly happened. I will tell the story because I know it's so so silly. You and I, we know Walker, Dable, yeah, yeah. we buy them, Bill. So here's a funny story and, I, it's, and I, I wanna have him on the show for sure. And his book really helped me out. And for you listening, definitely check out the book. Yeah, so this is a funny, yeah, funny, silly story is I had a batch and I had the name Acquisitions with S, Acquisitions Lab, and I was just jumping around so excited. And then Walker, he see me and like, hey dude, what is that? <laughs> and he come back and say, and I say, well, you know, I'm launching my podcast, blah, blah, blah. And then he's like, oh, okay, that's the name of my training. And I'm like, oh. <laughs> That's awesome. So he put together a training out there. I think it's about, you know, three, 5,000 bucks for teaching people how to acquire businesses and whatnot. But um, I think uh, yeah. there's a good chunk of my videos that are bonuses in his course. There you go. So long story short, I think that inspired me. Your podcast inspired me and of course the book. But that's the reason why I didn't launch earlier, just because I was so sad and like, I did change the name now. It's the name is Acquiring Scale. But by the way, you should be happy that you don't have to spell acquisitions all the time. The fact that he has to spell acquisition entrepreneur every day, like if he doesn't have a short key for that, like, oh my gosh. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, especially with my accent, people are like, what, what do you say? <laughs> I saw shifting gear, uh, gears here. You know, we cover some of the elements on your story and now there's different players and advisors. You also talk about financial targets. So you talk about three financial targets that an owner should identify, monitor and measure. Like you're saying, it's going to be the same for a buyer, right? Yeah, it is. And this is just almost for entrepreneurs in general. You want me to explain them and how it fits on both sides? Because even knowing these is going to be beneficial if you're looking at buying someone and also understanding their financial targets and yours. So the three are, what is the target annual income that you want? And the passive annual income. So take the basic, the wealth managers will talk about this a lot. So if you want 200 grand a year in passive income, you need 5 million bucks chugging along to be able to pull 4% off of that and not, not have to worry about it, right? I mean, that's kind of the general rule. So then inside that 5 million bucks is your net worth, okay? So then the first target is your income, the 200 grand. The second target that you need to measure monitor is your net worth outside the business. So do you have 401k? Do you have income producing assets? So I got a lot of people I know that are clients or entrepreneurs that they've got real estate or they got something that makes up that 5 million bucks that also helps produce income, right? So you say, okay, 
Because the outside net worth will shed some light of where the business fits into your net worth, right? So now the third financial target is what is the value of your business as it stands today, net of taxes and fees if you sold it for the intrinsic value. And so essentially, once you understand what you need to be financially free and what your business, how your business fits into that, now you have the ability to make decisions, right? Can I keep the business as a passive owner and then continue to grow the asset to buy other assets? Or when I liquidate and sell my company, I need to do the, to take that 500 grand and then buy another company to level up my, essentially grow on the ladder to buy another company to, to create more wealth, to create more income. Like, is it funding another venture or is it to be completely free because I'm free? And the, the way that the principles work, it helps. The first one is your drivers. Like, what do you want? The second one is those targets. And then you say, okay, now what are my options? So like, let's flip on the, the F from the buyer's perspective. Here's what happens so many times is I say, let's say I'm at a trade show. Let's say I'm at Rodeo. And I say, hey, I give you 2 million bucks for your business. And remember, remember we're talking enterprise value. Like, yeah, that sounds awesome. I do million bucks. Like I've always thought about it. This thing sucks. I'm super burnt out. Let's do it. All right. I send over an LOI. You sign it. You did no prep work. You've got no <laughs> one helping you out. And then I say, okay, send me all your due diligence. We start diving into it and say, by the way, it's probably only worth one and a half. And by the way, when it, you have to pay down debt, pay down tax. So what happens is these sellers get to the deal table and they don't know those financial targets and they're going, holy shit, I'm going to walk away with only 200 grand after this is all said and done. And like, I just, and that's net. And the rest of the million bucks comes with an earn out and I have to be an employee for two years. And they're going, well, that's why deals fall apart at the end because the, the owner or the seller doesn't understand those. So when the buyer is trying to buy it, they're going, why didn't the deal fall apart? It's like, because the dude can't literally live if he sells. <laughs> and so understanding those is super important because then you can have, I mean, that's really where the financial game is played. I mean, if you think about Walker's book, he's talking about buying companies and like how do those fit into your financial targets? Because as you're growing them, you're paying down the debt and then you're growing the value of the company that impacts your financial targets and it also impacts whether you should sell it or not. Yeah, I'm probably going to have to do another episode down the road with you and chat more in depth about this thing. And I don't know if you have seen this whole movement of people like wanting to retire early and whatnot. But my thought is, so first I want to hear your thought, your take on FIRE, like early retirement, the movement, like if you have any pros and cons. But I think so far what I like about that model is I want to do that, but with ownership of businesses, not with just cash. And they're investing in stock market, which is like right now they're in deep trouble, right? Right. Because, but I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or insights in, in that model and instead of doing it with investing stocks, why not doing it in like businesses? Well, it, I think it's the bigger question of like, okay, it's about being intelligent where you start with your annual income. So like if you need 15 grand a month in cash flow to maintain your lifestyle, what is the least amount of work that you have to do and the least amount of risk that you can uh, that you can take on to create that? So you're either tying your job, so part of your W-2 role to, to getting that 15 grand a month, or you have investments that come up with the cash flow to come up with that 15 grand a month. And then you just slowly start chipping it away. So you say, okay, well, and then what's the risk that it will maintain now and forever? And this is just, again, businesses, real estate, bonds, stocks, all of it is assets and they're all... There's a risk associated with the cash flow, and there has to be a correct pricing of that risk. So going back to your point, it's like 
my theory is it's about knowing what you under like what is the individual's skill set so if you're an entrepreneur it might be running companies that might be some part of it and so how do you get that 15 grand a month with the least amount of risk and the least amount of worry and so like if all that 15 grand a month is coming off of stocks i would say that there's a huge risk in that first of all because the, the stock market is effing delusional because we had the worst two months in economic history and it's going up and there's a five-hour podcast we could do about why that's happening but like there's risk there, right? And then if it's only in real estate, there's risk there. If it's only from one business and you're an Amazon reseller and Amazon's going to be coming out with a new product and there's risk associated with that 15 grand a month that you're getting in cash, but even if you're a passive owner or not, it's just about assessing that and then saying, what do you want to do that you enjoy that gives you that 15 grand a month with the least amount of risk and the least amount of worry? And if it's owning a couple businesses and it, if it's, buying some real estate, like I would say have some real estate, some stocks, some company distributions, all part of that. And then like, what kind of control do you have over it? And so I think if you like, if you were talking like, let's say, you know, you're wondering, should I sell or should I hire a president? You said, well, if I hire a president, that's going to eat 10 grand a month into my cash flow, but I still have five grand a month. What else should I do to get my own cat to, to bridge that gap? But then I keep the company. Right. And then if that president grows it, I should be able to start taking distributions again in 12 months. And that's going to stack on top of that. But now I'm no longer tied to that company. In that example, what you're talking about, Preston, just kind of to go on the example of the company that we we're chatting earlier, like a half a million dollar net profit a year company that it's been owner operated. Will a president for a company like that, will he be just compensated like 150K? here's your salary, or will it be compensated on net profits or some kind of like incentive to grow the company? I mean, usually what happens is the owner gives up equity way too fast. So don't do that. <laughs> so like pretty typical structure, it goes, you know, president, then you, and again, if you're talking about a decent sized company, president, admin, finance, ops, and then sales and finance. Let's say the president's getting paid 150 grand. Each of them are getting, each of the other executives are getting paid hundred grand. The president should be getting paid probably 80% of their pay in base. 20% of it could be a variable. It could be tied to normalized EBITDA and actually the valuation. It's a trailing 12-month budget and forecast. You could be doing like cash conversion cycles. There's all these really cool things that you can do that are all value-driven from a president. And then you could say, you know, here's your annual bonuses tied to value creation, literally creating more value. And then at some point, there could be some sort of liquidation event for them that they get a percentage of what's called phantom stock. You know when and how you ever decide to sell and then that all just trickles down so it's more detailed with the other executives but i mean yeah it should be driven towards what you want which is increasing the value increasing the ebitda and paying down debt love it that sounds some of the things that you're going to be learning when you check out intentional growth and you're going to be rebranding you say pretty soon uh the podcast on our 200th episode intentional growth which is the name of our course and the name of uh the boot camp and our model and stuff like that so it's I think it's time because it's not about retirement, like you said. You know what I mean? This is not about like what is life after because life after doesn't really exist. It's all about having choices while you have the company. So it's that's true freedom. Like you don't have to do anything. Yes. So before we wrap up in your personal future and your strategy on buying businesses, I know in another podcast, you briefly mentioned something about potentially doing a fund. Is that something still in the horizon? Are you being researching in like 
creating your own investment fund? Ideally, we wouldn't have to because between my partner and I, if we if we do it right, so our goal for the like my long term goal is I think that there's a huge need for home services. So I like essentially one number to call from HVAC garage doors, that kind of stuff. So we actually were close to buying a a garage door service. I came from the business world of you have sales of products and then you service them. You name an industry, it's that's kind of the same thing. So, you know, we were close to buying a company before this whole thing happened. And I personally believe for a lot of businesses, it's going to take a while for us to understand what the new consumer behavior is like and what their new spend is. So like the way you value companies based on the like how you value a company from an intrinsic value, not from a strategic value of like what this could mean from a strategic purpose, but it, it the, the multiple comes from the risk of the cash flow. So if you do a 4X, it's four years in EBITDA that you're willing to pay, which is essentially based on the discounted cash flow model that is tied to forecasting revenue and cash flow. And like you have to have a confident score. Essentially, there's a it's going to discount the discount or the the company specific risk is it uh, relates to that mo- that model. And if people don't, if you don't know how people are going to buy, I don't know how you can price assets or price companies. So I think it, personally, I want to wait like twelve to twenty four months. So we're going to keep doing this, and this is never going to go away. But I just don't know how things are going to change. I mean. Are people going to buy 5,000 or garage doors? Are people going to be buying the way they always have or have the same amount of buying power? And I don't think so. There's a lot of uh, uncertainties and opportunities as well. So I'll definitely uh, follow up with you in about a year to see have you in the podcast again. But I know you launched the productized the version of the training right now. So what's the best way for people to check out that? And um, what's different? We discussed that there is a lot of educational resources that people that have decided and committed to buy a business, they need to commit to training, right? So um, launching now this new version online and, and why do you think people should check it out? It was a two-day boot camp and it's still, it's not a complete replacement. So I think we have close to six hours of educational content that's on the highlights of the boot camp. So it's based on our five principles. It's how to what, the first principle is how to determine what you want. The second one is a total deep dive in those financial targets, valuations, deal structures, net proceeds, net proceeds calculators. Then there's a ton on the exit options, all the different ways of them, and then how they are structured. And then increasing value, so the strategically increasing value based on your finances and strategic planning. And then how to hire your team of advisors. I mean, all this, the, the foundation, this is applicable to any business. And there, we wanted to do this, but it, the pandemic just, forced us to do it sooner so that way we can use this supplement and we can have affiliates and i can be going on podcasts and it's a way for people to get this education and jump right to a specific topic if they want to and then watch it over and over again all the all the reasons anybody should productize their knowledge it just was before we're forced to do it and so i'll give you the we'll do coupon codes 10 percent off for podcast guests and then mastering your cash flow is a mini series that we did it's 95 bucks and it's three hours all in the financials on cash flow, 13 week cash flow statement, building a budget, and then the fi- the financial video from the boot camp. So it's like, if you want to be tied like understanding like the company financials and how to like actually look at them, it's a, it's a good peer into what good looks like. I love it. I'm, I'm buying it right away. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll be leaving the link in the, in the show notes. So Ryan, man, thank you so much. I'm definitely going to have you and thank you for sharing your journey and being so open and honest man again you are a great inspiration to me and for you guys go check out his podcast the training and thank you so much brother thank you very much appreciate that it's been fun being on the other side of the the mic (laughs) 